cliffcentral.com. Joel Pollack is a South African-American conservative political commentator. He's also the uh, editor-at-large at Breitbart News, and uh, he's in South Africa at the moment paying a little visit. He's no stranger to this country. He's had uh, an incredible life here long before he became uh, famous and important in the United States. And uh, went to school in, in Johannesburg. He's got family here. He studied at UCT. He also worked for Tony Leon for a while as a speechwriter and, and a strategist. Um, he went to Harvard after that. And uh, suddenly, everything took off in an incredible direction. He's written a ton of books. He even ran for Congress once. And, uh, and now he's got lots to say about a whole lot of things. And I'm looking to tap into that brain of his this morning. Uh, he is Joel Pollock. It is a great pleasure to have you here, Joel. Nice to see you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Where, where do we begin with you? I mean, first of all, you, you still spend a lot of time paying attention, I think, to South Africa. So having been back now after COVID and everything else, probably for the first time, um, what's changed? What's obviously changed? And what have you been looking forward to seeing and hearing? Well, I literally just got off the plane, so I'm still forming some impressions, but it's exciting to be here. It's just an exciting place. It's an interesting place. It is looking a little bit the worse for wear, but I think we all are. If you go around the world, I think everywhere has taken a bit of a hit since COVID. Los Angeles, where I live now, has had a pretty rough ride, and we're building it back up again, but look, everyone- Are you building it back better? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. And <laughs> it's a long process for everybody. I mean, yeah. it's it's not good. If you come to parts of LA, you'll see tent cities, homeless people living on the street in downtown Los Angeles. That was a problem already before COVID, but it's become worse. And it's quite striking, especially when you're used to South Africa and the informal settlements and that sort of thing. And then you have a major city in, in the United States with 60,000 homeless people just kind of wandering around. It's a little bit different because it's not really a pattern of migration that you have where in South Africa you have people moving from rural areas to urban areas. Mm-hmm. In L.A. and other cities where there's homelessness, there's a huge drug addiction component to it. There's a lot of mental illness There was a policy mistake I think you can trace back to the 1960s where America deinstitutionalized the mentally ill and said, look, we don't want any repeats of the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We don't want to keep anybody inside an institution. So they made it very hard to commit people to mental institutions. And as a result, it's very hard to get people mental help, uh, mental health uh, assistance. So there are a lot of problems with homelessness in Los Angeles, it's not the only place where there are problems. San Francisco has big problems, other major cities. But we have, I think, more of a problem partly because we are a warmer climate. So people who are homeless in other cities do gravitate toward California. And and, and actors, I mean, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I, I mean, there's a political component to this, isn't there? There is. We have extremely generous welfare benefits in California as compared to some of the neighboring states. So there's that. And there's also just an inability or lack of will in Los Angeles to do anything about it. There's a town I used to live in called Santa Monica, which is basically surrounded on three sides by Los Angeles. And Santa Monica is very left-wing, but has taken a very different approach to law enforcement. And they enforce the laws against camping out on the street at night. So there's a street that is the boundary between LA and Santa Monica, and you can drive down this street. It's called Centinella Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And on one side, you have this tent city, And on the other side, a completely clear sidewalk. 
and one side, the first side is LA and the second side is Santa Monica. And Santa oh, wow. Monica enforces the law. LA has the same laws, but they don't enforce them. So it's a matter of political will. Well, it shows you that it's, uh, you know, that there is a solution to this. And, and yeah. the solution is in law enforcement and not defunding the police or giving out free crack pipes, which I see is part of the, uh, the, the new act that the, the, the Biden administration <laughs> enacted just a short while ago. The crack pipe thing is part of an effort to try to encourage more responsible drug consumption. Again, it's part of this homelessness and mm-hmm. the opioid epidemic. It, it predates the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, but we've had this massive problem with opioids. Fentanyl is especially bad. A lot of it comes across the southern border from Mexico, but it's manufactured in China. And it's been a major sticking point in relations between the U.S. and China over the last few years. Trump tried to get the Chinese to do something about it. They said they were going to. They really haven't. And so we have tens of thousands of Americans dying each year from fentanyl overdoses, often because they're taking some other drug and they don't know that fentanyl is in it. But we have this huge addiction problem. And, yeah, it's just gotten worse with coronavirus. People who were on lockdown, people who lost jobs and that sort of thing. So it's hard to judge where anywhere in the world is right now because everybody's on this path to recovery. We are doing pretty well in terms of our economic growth right now. It's very fast. The American economy is bouncing back, but we have all kinds of new problems. We have inflation, which is partly to be expected after you bounce back so quickly, but it was exacerbated by... Oh, you printing print, millions yeah, and millions of dollars. All the spending. Joe Biden Trillions. Came, yeah. yeah. Joe Biden came into office, and we hadn't even finished spending the money that Trump assigned, uh, Trump signed into law, and Biden added another $2 trillion in COVID relief, and... Now he wants to add even more. So there is incredible inflation. That means interest rates are going to go up. People are very worried about what that means economically. And there's a labor shortage. You know, we have the opposite problem that South Africa has. I mean, South Africa has a shortage in skilled labor. So yes. there's, there, there's some of that. Sure. But we have this shortage across the board of skilled, unskilled, semi-skilled. At the same time, we have this huge influx of illegal immigration. We had, I think, almost 2 million people come across the border since Biden took office. And this is a big deal to most Americans. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the administration plays it down because it's not politically convenient for them. And they're looking to kind of woo illegal immigrants as future voters. But That's right. But and the, if you say that, by the way, you can get canceled. I mean, oh, oh you know. listen, uh, you're speaking to someone. <laughs> they've, they, I've, I've probably been canceled a record number of times here, so I'm, I'm right. not worried about that. But the truth is that the average American is concerned about it, and, and even more so average Hispanic Americans who are legal immigrants are more concerned about that than anyone else. It's fascinating, but the conventional wisdom until very recently was that Hispanic or Latino voters would choose the Democrats because the Democrats had a very weak immigration policy. They were sure. for open borders and that sort of thing. But as you point out, for U.S. citizens who are originally from Latin America or whose parents were, there's a huge problem created by illegal immigration because many of the migrants are coming into Latino communities, they're competing for jobs, they're overwhelming social services. So there's been this shift to the right, actually, among Latino voters who Democrats assumed were always going to be in their camp. Now they are moving to the right. The defund the police thing also really hurt the Democrats among Latino voters because the Latino community often lives in high-crime areas but doesn't have the same history of negative interactions with police that is more common in the African-American community. So mm-hmm. the defund the police movement really turned off those voters, and so they are moving toward the Republicans. It began under Trump, but it has continued. Well, don't worry, because Nancy Pelosi tells us it's dead. Defund the police is dead. <laughs> she, she quoted a, a New York congressman who she said is, uh, is very left 
and she said it's all dead. I don't know what to make of American politics in general, but you could probably give me a much better view because as the editor-at-large for Breitbart, and you guys come under huge scrutiny from the mainstream media. I don't include you in the mainstream media, even though you've been around, Breitbart's been around for a very long time now. And there's a huge amount of cred that you guys have built up over the years, but many dismiss you as just being a right-wing you know, kind of, uh, I suppose, some kind of propaganda tool for the American right. How do you feel about that? And, and what do you do inside of Breitbart to try and convince those people who don't know anything about you what you really do and to and to try and bring a bit of balance to those who think they know what you do? Well, just to give a bit of history. So Andrew Breitbart founded Breitbart News about 15 years ago, and then he launched it officially with a series of websites that we called The Bigs. There was Big Hollywood. That was actually the first one. So his first news website was Hollywood coverage. Mm -hmm. And the reason he started with Hollywood is that he believed that politics is downstream from culture, that culture basically defines everything. So he wanted to... And that was prescient because only now are we starting to see that that's really what the yeah. the, the big ideological split is. It's not, it's not about whether you're a conservative or a liberal in the old sense of either word. It's about the culture and 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 what kinds of things in the culture you want and what kinds of things you don't right and what nobody Hollywood, would have said that yeah. back then except him right he was he was a visionary in that sense and he wanted to hold a mirror up to hollywood and say this is what you guys are actually doing mm. it's been hugely effective i mean if you look at so many of the quote unquote woke hollywood movies that come out the hollywood movies that try to preach to people that have a left wing political view almost all of them do very poorly at the box office mm. And the audience has now come to understand that this is how Hollywood works. It's interesting that even liberal or left-wing Hollywood actors only do well in more conservative movies. The last movie I saw in the theater before the pandemic was Sonic the Hedgehog. I don't know if you've seen Sonic the Hedgehog, but <laughs> no. Jim you, Carrey. You do have two kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I took them to see Sonic the Hedgehog. Right. And, you know, it's this cartoon about a little blue alien who yeah. runs around. The bad guy is Jim Carrey. Now, Jim Carrey, comedian, great actor hated Trump. He's a very talented sure. painter and, and artist. He would draw these caricatures of Trump, which were absolutely grotesque. He hated Trump. But this movie is one of the most conservative movies I've ever seen. The villain is a guy who works for the government. He's also mm -hmm. a scientist who uses surveillance to follow his political enemies. So that was kind of prescient in looking ahead to, I suppose, COVID. coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. And then the hero is a small-town police officer. I mean, if you tried to make a movie about a police officer today, people would try to cancel yeah. you, I guess. But this was right before COVID. So you had a small-town police officer who's in an interracial marriage that the movie barely comments on at all. So he's living in this small town. He's married to a black woman who's a doctor. And they are tolerated by their small-town community. And in the end, the story is about the triumph of these small-town values of tolerance against the urban sort big of condescending... Yeah, big government, condescending society. It's so conservative. And Jim Carrey did very well in that movie, but it runs against everything he believes politically. But Hollywood can only do well with these classic themes of love and marriage and so when little he, guy versus when, big when, guy. When he did this, I mean, you watch the, the Oscars. I don't know who still does, but, you know, they're, they're, they're still <laughs> yeah. on. And the audiences are dropping right. by the moment. And, and every year it's lower and worse than it was the year before. And they can't even get a host because you can't crack any jokes because every joke is at someone's expense and they're going to cancel you. I mean, even comedians are running scared from this. Um, they always preach to everyone else how they should live their lives you know right. ordinary americans are the problem and like if only you could recycle 
right. then we would have a healthier world and climate change and you know more tolerance and less racism and all of this stuff. But in reality, these are the people who fly their private jets to the Super Bowl. These are the people who have, you know, they don't, they, they hire any illegal immigrant they can to do their garden in LA. And they don't seem to have any, they don't, they, they don't do what they say. Right. It, they it, want yeah. you to do that. So that's what Andrew focused on. And then he started launching the other websites. Big government was a website devoted to exposing problems with the government. And then he started big journalism, which focused on the media. And then there was big peace which was about world affairs. In 2012, he combined all of these bigs into Breitbart.com, which became, instead of a series of really what were blog websites, mm-hmm. it became a 24-hour uh, hours, day, new, seven days a week news website. So we, we shifted the entire company over from essentially blogging and essay writing and that sort of thing to 24-hour news coverage, which was a huge transition. And tragically, he passed away three days before the launch. Wow. So it was left to us to carry it out. And at that stage, you were what legal counsel? I had actually been appointed editor in chief at that stage. So oh, wow. Andrew made me editor in chief once we were moving to a news format, and I spent the six months before that getting everything ready. Then I managed the transition, of course, through this That's incredible a huge tragedy. responsibility. Yeah, and I mean, this guy was a—he was—he was a real force of nature. He was, and he was a terrific guy. I mean, he was so great at getting along with people who disagreed with him. There were people who were on the radical left who still enjoyed his company. Hmm. One of the amazing stories told about him after he died was that the last conversation he's known to have had was at a bar. He was having a glass of wine. He just walked in and he met someone who was on the left and they had this extensive political discussion and then he walked out of the bar and he, he was dead a few minutes later. And they found the guy who was talking to Andrew and they put him on the news and he was just describing this conversation he'd had and how they disagreed but disagreed politely. They had a drink and then Andrew left. So that, that's who Andrew was and he was mm. jovial and funny. And That doesn't happen so much in politics now. No, it hardly ever happens. And there were people on the left who were very sad that he died because he was just such a force. He was such a huge personality. But his vision continues and his essential vision, aside from the idea that culture defines politics, was that citizens can be journalists. And he recognized that the cell phone, the smartphone with cameras and so forth, would allow ordinary citizens to record what was actually happening. You didn't need the establishment media to act as a filter anymore. Ordinary people could respond through social media like Twitter. People could record their own videos of what was happening. And that enabled counter-narratives to develop. So it was no longer possible for the media to pretend something happened that didn't, which mm. which turns out to happen quite a lot. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's still going on. Yeah. So so that was his vision, and Breitbart grew and grew and grew, and then we were one of the only pro-Trump websites in an editorial sense. And I guess we were pro-Trump almost by default because we are a conservative website, so during election season, our editorial view is – in favor of the Republicans more sure. than the Democrats. But you're open about that. You're not like CNN who pretend to be unbiased, right. right? Right. CNN pretended to be unbiased. They actually did okay in 2016 because they had these panels that were that were fairly evenly balanced. But then they – Well, w- they, they, they were doing that because they were absolutely convinced Hillary was going to win. Exactly. They thought Hillary was going to win. And once Trump won, the rest of the media blamed CNN. They said, you guys built Trump up by giving him so much airtime. So they went – And they kind of did. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know – and anyway, but we're up front with who we are, and there was a lot of uh, uncertainty within the conservative movement and conservative media companies, which had started to proliferate by then, thanks in part to Andrew's example. There was a lot of 
unease about Trump because he wasn't a traditional Republican, traditional conservative. He had actually been a Democrat for much of his life. Mm -hmm. He donated to Hillary Clinton and that sort of thing. And he was off the wall. His character, his language, his mannerisms. Well, America's been asking for a third-party candidate for how long, and they finally got one and weren't sure they wanted it. Right. People like the idea of a political outsider. We make movies. Mm. There was, uh, I think, Bullworth by uh, Warren Beatty. Yeah. Yeah. We we make this kind of movie. We we think about these things. We fantasize about the outsider candidate. Along came an outsider candidate, and the establishment rejected him, including the Republican establishment, the conservative establishment. And, And Breitbart just decided not to do that. Also, Trump was a very good reader of the temperature of the American electorate, and he sensed in Breitbart's coverage of specific issues like immigration and the border and trade that there was a constituency for a different approach to those issues that wasn't being catered to by either of the two major parties. There was a kind of consensus in Washington around free trade and open borders, and a lot of people were upset about that. There were a lot of displaced workers in the United States. There are a lot of people in border states who are seeing rising crime and disorder and seeing the rule of law collapse in some parts of the country. And Trump spoke to that. Trump really reached those people. And other candidates didn't. It just, they had no, they had no real sense for it. And so Trump found that audience through us because we were the first to cover the border in a very serious way. We were the first to expose the migrant caravans of underage kids traveling thousands and thousands of miles through Central America. And also the sneering kind of attitude of, of, you know, New York on the one coast and L.A. on the other, or San Francisco or Seattle. Right. The bi-coast and, and, and the kind of the way, the way that they look down their noses at people in the rest of America. And, and, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton famously called them deplorables. But, you know, you see it from Hollywood. You see it from yeah. a lot of the, the Washington kind of establishment people that they really don't actually like working-class Americans. Yeah, and you see that also in Canada, I know, which is very much in the news right now, but there's some of that flavor in Justin Trudeau's response to these truckers. I mean, the truckers come from many parts of Canada, but many are at least working in the middle part of the country where you have small towns separated by long distances, and that's the part of the country that urban Canada wishes didn't exist. It's a rural part of the country. They, They have some guns there. They are more traditional in their outlook. More they religious. don't really need government as much as the right. people in the big cities right. do. And this is something I'll get to with you in a minute because we've got so much territory to cover. Yeah. But, but, but wrapping up the Breitbart story, as, as the editor you know, there now and, and running as much as you do and, and the huge network that you guys have developed, also the, the luminaries who've come out of Breitbart since then, and there have been a lot of famous names who've worked for you guys, <laughs> um, good and bad famous names. Um, it it is it is a very powerful news business now and and for many people it's one of the few that they can take seriously the the lack of trust that the average person in the world has for media at the moment has got to be at an all-time low and while that's not true for perhaps the digital media and the upcoming you know the more blog kind of substack those those sorts of places which are which are growing the rest are shrinking and i want to know what you th- what you think the reason for that is where do you think they've squandered their capital and their trust. So I'll just tell a little bit more of the Breitbart story before I answer that because it does help me answer that question. So I was editor-in-chief for 18 months, and then I did a kind of switching of roles with Alex Marlowe, who's now the editor-in-chief. He moved to Washington, and we became more focused on Washington politics, really getting the insider story there because we had started out in Hollywood. We're still Mm -hmm. based in California, which is where I'm based, but I get to do a lot more independent stuff, travel and journalism and that kind of thing. 
in 2016, we were hated because of our tolerance for Trump. And the chairman of our company at the time was Steve Bannon, who then was appointed <laughs> the CEO of Trump's campaign in August 2016. So that right. was interesting. And when you talk about Breitbart being marginal and so forth, nobody could say that anymore after 2016 because we were no. the only website really of any size or significance that had anticipated the possibility that Trump could win. Nobody else thought Trump could win. And he won, and it was this exhilarating and also frightening, tumultuous time. And we became very, very important for people to understand Trump's supporters because they were reading Breitbart. They still do. We are one of the most highly trafficked websites on social media of any kind. Um, the top political news website, often on Facebook and, and other social media, we have really developed a strong practice of creating stories that are easily shared that people want to share with others. But we do that without sacrificing accuracy. And even if we didn't want to be accurate, we have to be accurate because Facebook and the other social media companies have cracked down so much on what they call misinformation. And they don't like you. I mean, they, they don't, don't like they, us. No. They don't like that Facebook is used to disseminate your stuff. Right. So the New York Times can make massive mistakes. I mean, Russia collusion was a hoax. and they, they, they can make terrible mistakes, but they won't get dropped from Facebook or from any of these other social media websites. If we make one mistake, we can get kicked off of these platforms and right. they're waiting to do it and there are people mistakes are higher for you much higher so we actually cannot be inaccurate you know we, we have our own take on things and our own spin but sure. we cannot be wrong about the facts and so our own audience trusts us more that develops that relationship of trust people don't trust the media because the media are telling them things they know to be untrue and for example when the media were saying throughout the past year that inflation was transitory that that this is just going <laughs> yeah. away Nobody felt that Not just that the way. media, but Jen Psaki at uh, the White House as well. Right. But you expect it from the public relations people and right. the politicians. The media carried that message without really listening to what people were telling them about how much fuel was costing, how much housing is costing, how much food was costing at the grocery store and that sort of thing. And the media just don't report what's actually happening. And there is a sense of disconnect now between the media and the public. Pe people are dependent on media for information, but increasingly drawn to alternative sources. Well, you've written a book, um, How Trump Won, The Inside Story of a Revolution. And I think that for many people, I mean, Hillary Clinton still doesn't seem to know how it happened. <laughs> she, she's still not sure. She's still perplexed by how all of this happened right under her nose. I was in New York when, when Trump won the election. And I remember... I was halfway in terms of location between where she was planning her celebration and the fireworks were canceled <laughs> at like seven in the evening and where Trump was uh, just down the way. And, and there was this electricity in the air. Um, and suddenly for all the Hillary supporters, and I was with a, a number of them, the, the night just went dark. It was, they, <laughs> yeah. they had no idea this was going to happen. Now we can go into the reasons that Trump won, but a big part of that is that the media just couldn't read the room. They couldn't. And I was actually on the press plane, the traveling press plane following Trump around. So I was the Breitbart guy on a plane full of establishment media journalists, ABC, mm -hmm. NBC, CBS, CNN, New York Times, NPR, all of, all of these other people. And none of them thought Trump could win. Mm -hmm. I thought he could win. I didn't think he would win, but I thought he could win. As we got closer to Election Day, we started to see some more journalists, interestingly, mostly foreign journalists. There was a Brazilian crew that came in, and they thought Trump could win. But most of the international press, most of the domestic press in the United States were, were absolutely convinced Hillary Clinton 
was going to win. And I tell this story in my book. We had one or two little vans. So when our plane would land, it sounds like a big deal. We had a, we had a plane, but it was a small 737. We would land, and these two little vans would come, and we would board the vans and go to the Trump event. We happened to land in Charlotte, North Carolina, I think it was, or Raleigh, one of the cities in North Carolina, at the same time that Hillary Clinton's plane landed. She was doing a rally in the center of town. Trump was doing a rally out in the suburbs, the far distant suburbs. And she had a much larger jet. She had a huge Boeing jet. And then the press that was on her plane took several large coach buses. I mean, we just stood there with our faces pressed to the glass of the window inside these little vans. Almost inverse to the crowd that came. Right. So she only had like three or 4,000 people at her rally, and she had all these Hollywood stars performing. And Trump had 17,000 people in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere. And that was the story of the campaign. But the media were absolutely convinced she was going to win. I was in New York that night as well. I was actually at the Trump victory party, and I got there at about 6.30 in the evening, and it felt like a funeral. I mean, walking in there... Everybody was saying Trump was going to lose. All the pundits, Frank Luntz, who's a very popular mm. pundit in the United States, prognosticator, political guy, he said that he had seen the exit polls and Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States. So people were walking in there like, well, you know, we may as well stick together and so forth. And then Florida came in. The Florida results started coming in. And then suddenly everyone realized Trump could win. And the mood changed over several hours. And it's probably the most extraordinary thing I've ever personally witnessed. And I was up there in the press gallery, and I was surrounded by all the journalists who thought Trump couldn't win. We were all there, and they were just shell-shocked, absolutely shell-shocked. And at five in the morning, I finally made it back to my friend's apartment where I was staying, also a fellow ex-South African. And we went out onto his balcony overlooking Third Avenue, and we, we had a glass of wine, and we just looked out over the traffic and so forth of early morning New York, and, and we were just amazed by what we had seen happen. We, we were just stunned. And, and we felt like the only people in the world who had anticipated it because he was also someone who thought Trump could win. And the panic in the media, the panic in Hollywood was just oh, crazy. Yeah. There was rioting. Well, you know, there it, was, it, it was turned crazy. everything upside down. Yeah. And, and, and America will never be the same again. And unfortunately for many, <laughs> for many people, they, they see that as the beginning of things. I mean, stuff was already happening under the Obama administration. And even you could say under George W. Bush. But America is now in this extremely polar, polarized right. position where, you know, the people on the right see the people on the left as being evil and the people on, on the left see the people on the right as being evil and the, the twain shall not mix. And there's no Andrew Breitbart who's able to have friends on the, the far left if you're on the right or on the right if you're on the far left. Right. So this goes back I and mean, I'll give you my theory about how this has come to be. But in the 1990s, the big complaint among political pundits was that the parties were too similar, that Republicans and Democrats didn't disagree on enough things. And that was partly because of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's political genius was that when he started to lose support because he was moving too far left, he switched. He moved to the center. He adopted Republican policies. And Republicans hated it because... Especially economic ones. Yeah, the economic ones. Uh, trade. Social stuff more or less stayed the same. The social policies were kind of always, you know, the same ones that the Democrats had said they, they right. stood for. But there was this convergence. You know, even on the social issues... Bill and didn't the Democrats do that because they wanted to get some of the funding that the Republicans were getting at that It's stage. not even the funding. You know, Bill Clinton was a Southern Democrat. Mm. And what Southern Democrats understood, coming from a socially conservative 
part of the country, right. was that they needed to appeal to working-class Americans who are often culturally conservative. Even though they may vote more to the left on economic issues, they will often vote for Republicans for cultural reasons. And in the Democratic primary in 1992, Bill Clinton actually went after violence in rap music. He took on this really difficult, treacherous issue, which today would have resulted in him being canceled, really. Mm -hmm. But he, he took on a black female rapper named Sister Soldier who, who spoke about shooting police. And he took that on. He, he said that was not acceptable. And she resented it because she felt she'd been made a scapegoat and so forth. But voters noticed that. And they realized Bill Clinton is not going to be a traditional leftist. This is a different kind of Democrat. So there was this convergence in the 1990s. I think what happened with September 11th was even though there was this momentary unity of the country, and I was actually here in South Africa, I, I was I was living uh, or staying with a relative of mine in Hillbrow. I had a great aunt who lived in Hillbrow, still one of the sort of last holdouts in Hillbrow. So uh, I was I was there and I was watching this from Hillbrow, which is a crazy enough place uh, on a normal day, but it was quiet. Hillbrow went quiet on 9-11 for the first time. Wow. <laughs> uh, even in Hillbrow, <laughs> it was a big deal. But the trauma of that event really changed American society. I don't think we've yet recovered from it. And there were a series of upheavals, economic and so forth. There was the financial crisis after that. Mm -hmm. And instead of finding a way back to the center, instead of finding a way to reconnect to one another, the political parties began to diverge. It really accelerated under Obama because Obama was a man of the left. And in contrast to Bill Clinton, when Obama lost Congress in 2010 in the Tea Party wave, and that's when I ran for Congress. I was part of that. When Obama lost Congress, instead of doing what Clinton did and getting the message and moving back to the center, Obama moved further left, believing, correctly as it turns out, that if he connected with enough of his own core voters and motivated them, he could forget about the rest of the voters. That's not how Bill Clinton saw it. Bill Clinton said, I'm going to take my core voters. I'll lose a few, but I want to add on these other voters in the middle and on the right, and I want to create a coalition. And that's what he did. Obama said, no, I don't need to do that. I'm just going to motivate my core supporters. supporters. I want to turn them out as intensely, as widely as possible, and I can forget about the rest. And that's what happened. Obama moved to the left after losing Congress. And Trump was the response to that. Yeah. Trump was the Republican answer to that. Because, so instead of yeah. a lot of Americans being surprised by the 2016 election, they should have already started to be surprised a couple of years before that. People were. People were. Obama took the – I mean Obama did start. Let's give credit where it's due. His initial pitch and the reason he won that first election was in no small part due to the fact that he was this unifier figure. Right. He was talking about bringing together, you know – Americans of all stripes, all kinds of ideological backgrounds, black and white, old and young, rich and poor, his whole hope and change. Message. That was the message. Yeah. Right. And, and you can go back to 2004. He gave the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention that year. And the Democrats lost that year to George W. Bush. But Obama gave this address. This address. There are no red states, no blue states, red right. being conservative yeah. and blue being liberal. There are only the United States. Nothing in his career reflected that at all, except for that speech and a few other speeches. But Obama, if you looked at his voting record, even at that point, it was the most left-wing of any member of Congress. Mm. And he was then in the Illinois state legislature, but he had also been very left-wing there. So those of us who were looking into his background and looking at his career as a left-wing activist and so forth knew that this was kind of a show. This was a, a bit of a – But there's so much that's performative about, right. about a lot of these leftist politicians. <laughs> and I, I, I'll, again, I'll save the Trudeau and 
Jacinda Ardern conversation for a right. little bit later because it's all performative. There's very little that they actually do or really believe in. They just they're trying to pander essentially. Well, I think he is an interesting character because he seems Who's to Who is this Trudeau? Uh, no, sorry, Obama. Obama. Obama, Obama yeah. Because he is a left-wing person, but his own personal life is so far away from that. I mean, mm. he lives the life of an elitist. He does not live a, a kind of left-wing life. I mean, Bernie Sanders, say what you will about <laughs> Bernie Sanders, he lived in a shack for many years. Well, he's and, bumming and, off his friend for most of his life. Yeah, now he's got three homes and that sort of thing. Yeah. He's cashed in on his fame, but he was... He, d- he did live uh, exactly the life he was telling everybody right. else. Right. He wanted to live. Right. So He wanted them to live. That's part of Bernie Sanders' appeal to his voters is that he has a kind of authenticity that Obama didn't, that Hillary Clinton certainly didn't. But Obama took a country that was already divided, and instead of uniting it as promised, he divided it further. Mm -hmm. We had just come out of the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, and instead of doing what Clinton would have done, and in fact what former Clinton chief of staff Rahm Emanuel um, advised Obama to do, Instead of going incrementally, changing things slowly, letting the economy recover before doing anything, Obama went straight to overhauling the healthcare system. There was no reason it had to be done at that point. But Obama frightened the American public into believing he was going to radically alter their health insurance, and he did. It's much more expensive now in the United States. There are things people like about the new system, which is that it's much harder to be denied coverage and it covers more people, Mm -hmm. but it's much more expensive. I mean, the amount of money people are paying for health insurance, and that's the opposite of what he promised. He promised he was going to lower the cost. It's much more expensive now. So there are some benefits, but there are some huge costs. And that frightened people, and that's why you had the big backlash in 2010. Obama also had a radical view of the United States on the world stage, and he saw the United States the way post-colonial theorists of foreign relations view the United States as kind of the inheritor of all these imperial legacies, And he saw the United States as a negative force, almost as if he were coming from within the non-aligned movement, you know, sort of third, almost from a South African perspective, really. And so Obama pulled the United States out of every situation in which we were leading, we were pushing an agenda that was about democracy and our own values. He didn't. He didn't want any part of that. I mean, even down to things like the Internet. Domain names used to be run out of the United States. If you wanted to set up an Internet domain, the international body that decides on domain names was run by the United States. And Obama gave that up for no real reason. There was no strategic benefit to giving it up, but it had a great advantage in that it gave us a huge amount of strategic leverage. For example, if if Iran, for example, did something bad, we could simply seize their domain names. Yeah. I mean, it was, but he gave that away. But he seems to have seeded yeah. also America's kind of moral uh, and, and, and intellectual capital. On, on the international stage because America suddenly was a whole lot more reticent to, to act on things which before they were confident enough to go in on. Well, and, and, yes and, and perhaps no. that was him, but perhaps it was also the changing international relations playing field. Y- yes and no. So there was a, one exception to that rule, and that was the, the doctrine of what Samantha Powers, who was our uh, UN ambassador for a while. She called it responsibility to protect. So there was this idea of humanitarian interventions. That's mm-hmm. why Obama went into Libya. Now, I actually don't mind that philosophy, but Obama repeated all the mistakes of Iraq, of the Iraq war. It's funny because he beat Hillary Clinton in 2008 in the Democratic primary because she had voted for the Iraq war and he had right. voted, well, he hadn't actually voted against it, but he had opposed it. And then he came into office and when Libya came about, 
he was making the exact same arguments as George W. Bush. He was saying that we'll ignore the UN if we don't get a Security Council vote. It was like watching a different person. And I wrote an article at the time saying that this Obama guy, this Obama stance on foreign policy is a complete fraud. I mean, he was the anti-war guy, and now he's going to war. So he pulled America out of positions where the United States would be leading. The, yeah. the the philosophy emerged in the Libya conflict of, of what was called leading from behind, where the United States would be involved, but where there'd at least be this illusion of other countries taking the lead. So they got NATO involved, and Britain and France were, were, were yeah. going to be involved. And it all ended in tears, because when Gaddafi was taken, one of the only things Jacob Zuma was right about, you know, the, the idea of getting rid of Gaddafi, not a good idea. Jacob Zuma no. opposed it, and it destabilized Libya and Northern Africa, and uh, the so-called Islamic State moved in, and then we had Benghazi and so forth. Yeah. Um, so Obama left office thinking that he had reshaped the destiny of the United States. It was basically to be a country in a kind of a managed decline. Growth was never going to be particularly fast. We would have to learn to manage people out of jobs. We would have to get used to the fact that there might be large numbers of unemployed people and unemployable people in an increasingly technology-oriented economy. People started talking about things like universal basic income in South Africa. That would be the basic income grant. You can see the need for it in a country like South Africa where many people just have a cashless life. But people in Obama's circle began to worry that, well, because we're outsourcing so many jobs to China and we're focusing so much on high-tech jobs in this country, there's going to be a huge number of Americans who just so, don't have skills to work It's so almost getting people used to less. Used to less and out of work and a diminished role on the world stage, let China lead, let these other countries sure. lead. Almost and, an abdication of responsibility. Right. And and culturally, we don't need to believe in the traditional values of the United States anymore, the Constitution, liberty, a lot of things about the United States that makes the United States unique, Obama rejected. And although he later corrected himself and tried to walk some of this stuff back, he, he said he didn't believe that the United States was exceptional mm. in any way. And I, and I think it is exceptional. And many other people did as well. So the Trump backlash was really... A, a response, reaction to it that. Was a reaction to that. It was, yeah. it was, it was the response of a nation, or at least a significant part of the nation that had been overlooked, that did not want to go gently into the night. You know, that that right. said, we actually want to control our destiny. We don't want to be, to- we don't want to be sort of put out to pasture and told that we have to get used to things getting worse. So, th- so then they pulled off the shock move, the American voters, and right. and I mean by by not a, a huge margin, but by enough to have put everyone into a, a sense of discomfort, especially in the establishment and the media. Um, now, now Trump's in, and what's happened since then doesn't feel like it happened all that long ago, but, but we're now into the, the second year of, of Joe Biden, and there's a lot that hasn't necessarily gone the way that either the left or the right expected. Where do you see us now? What's happening in the United States at the moment is there's a huge backlash against the left-wing manner in which Joe Biden has governed. He was he's sold very left. Yes, he I mean let's yeah. let's not split any hairs. He's he's made Obama look like a conservative at this point. Yeah, and he was sold to the American electorate as a moderate because anyone he, but Trump. Anyone but Trump, but also Biden throughout most of his career, you really couldn't call him a moderate, but he had not been on the left. He had been basically wherever the center of the Democratic Party was, that's where he would be. He was a party man. So he wasn't as conservative as... It does show you how far left the the Democrats have gone. Yeah. Well, he also, in a sense, doesn't control his own presidency. It was really fascinating to watch what happened during the primary election. So I covered that 
and I wrote a book about it called Red November, which I should mm-hmm. give you, by the way. I should, I should send you that book. It was a lot of fun to write, and I followed all the Democratic presidential candidates around. And Biden couldn't draw a crowd. He couldn't raise any money. Nobody was excited about Joe Biden. He was in his basement most of the time. Well, but this is before the basement. This is in the early stages before coronavirus right, right, and right. people were still campaigning. And all the enthusiasm and energy was behind Bernie Sanders, essentially. Yeah, he, I remember he was that. drawing yeah. massive crowds. And the Democratic Party panicked. They did not want Bernie Sanders running the party. They did not want him as their candidate. They feared losing the election, but they also didn't want him cleaning house. Bernie Sanders has had an antagonistic relation uh, relationship with the Democratic Party hierarchy for a long time. And so they banded together, and, and the minute Biden had a chance, they consolidated around him. All the other candidates dropped out. They, they all supported Biden. Now, Biden had the nomination, and then coronavirus kicked in, and he's in his basement and so forth. Something weird then happened. So what happens to American presidential candidates typically is that they run to the right if they're Republicans and they run to the left if they're Democrats in the primary. That is to say, when they're running against members of their own party, they tend to move to extremes. The, the extremes or the wings of the party, you could say. When they have to appeal to the general electorate, they come back to the center. Biden didn't do that. Once Biden had the nomination, he started moving to the left and he started using words like revolutionary fundamental change. He started using a very South African word, transformation. Mm -hmm. This started to appear. He started sounding like Bernie Sanders. And that's because he had no constituency. Biden had no legitimate or authentic support within the Democratic Party electorate. He needed the Sanders voters to show up. So he spoke their language. And he had to trade away a lot of things on policy as well to the Bernie Sanders crowd. For example, on abortion, a very... uh, controversial issue in the United States. Biden had once had a very moderate position. That is to say, he was in favor of abortion rights, but against federal funding for abortion and and various nuances on that position. He reversed himself. Now he is in favor of of the government funding abortions, which which is not the current law, but he he wants to do that. That's where the left is. That's where the Democratic Party has been for a long time. Mm -hmm. So on a lot of issues like that, he, he just moved to the left and completely threw out decades of what his position had been beforehand. The American people have seen a year now of this kind of governance, and you've got the border with millions of people pouring across it. Under Trump, there was a wall going up. There was enforcement at the border. Yes, people were still coming, but it wasn't like this at all. And there were times when it slowed to a trickle. So there was border security. There was economic growth. And the economic growth under Trump actually helped the lowest earners most. You know, Trump was described by Biden as a guy who's just giving tax cuts to corporations. That wasn't the case. Trump gave tax cuts to middle-class households, and the economic growth that resulted lifted the middle-class and working class really out of where they had been stagnating for so long. Black incomes started to rise. Black unemployment hit an all-time low. Same thing in the Latino community. So Trump created this economy that was finally reaching the, the lowest rungs on the ladder, which was the opposite of where Obama was going. Obama's focus was on Wall Street and Silicon Valley. That was the Obama vision, that we're going to have slow economic growth. The rich are going to do fantastically well. They're going to come up with new technology, the jets flying to climate change conferences and so forth, the electric vehicles, all that stuff. It was really an elite focus, an elite-driven economy. And Trump went to a kind of 20th century vision of a working man and woman economy. And that drove the Democrats nuts because he basically stole the working class. Yeah. So blue collar uh, people. Now you have this uh, frustration in the economy where 
we're back to the old status quo where Biden's helping these elite industries focusing on electric cars and that sort of thing. But also it's, coronavirus. And, and let's just yeah. talk about that for a second because what looked like in the beginning um, an excuse for government to get more involved in everyone's lives and there were suddenly rules and regulations and you know everything was about keeping people safe and people were in the beginning legitimately afraid mm-hmm. and i think people looked to governments um and and for for the us it was you know it was interesting they had one year of of trump coronavirus and one year of biden coronavirus but the democrats went hard on the idea that we need to lock down Right. That we need to mandate masks, that we need to mandate vaccines, that we shouldn't allow individual rights to be a part of this discussion at all. And while it looked like that was something that was favorable in the beginning and which most people were in, you know, in agreement with, it's turned out to come back to bite them now because people are sick of this two years later. They have felt the sting. Many small business owners have lost their businesses. People are unemployed. Things are tougher than they've ever been. You said it at the start of this discussion. People are feeling tired and, and, and broken. And, and now the only people who are still calling for all of those regulations, all of that kind of lockdown stuff, are the far left. And people have had enough of it. It's biting them badly. There's been a reversal just in the last week or two of Democrats suddenly deciding that they want to be anti-lockdown. So right. they've read the polling numbers. They know that things are looking bad. But it's bad. not because the science changed. No, the science It's because change. the politics got, got complicated. So the saving grace of Trump's coronavirus policy – well, there were, there were two really – I mean, the vaccines. Let's give credit where it's due. So the vaccines – but the vaccines developed for a very specific reason. In the beginning of the pandemic, the big problem everybody had in the United States was there were not enough coronavirus testing kits around. Mm. The reason that happened was that the government was responsible for developing the testing kits. And government doesn't do things like that very well. And they manufactured the first testing kits and started sending them out to the state centers that were to distribute them. But there was a mistake at the laboratory in the government, so they couldn't use the initial round of testing kits. South Korea manufactured testing kits very rapidly, and that's because they got the private sector involved. So while Trump was taking a beating politically because there weren't enough testing kits, which wasn't his fault. I mean, the people responsible for the mistakes were the civil servants who had been there long before he got there. But Trump said, look, we're going to have the private sector involved in these vaccines. And the Operation Warp Speed, which is his program to develop the vaccine, the the genius of it was the United States government gave a whole bunch of money to these pharmaceutical companies and said, we're going to bet on these vaccines. We don't know which one of them is going to work, but we're going to buy hundreds of millions of doses of them in advance. We're going to hold on to these doses. You go and experiment and run the clinical trials, and we're going to put as many pieces of this process together at once to run simultaneously as we can so that as soon as you know this thing works, we can get it out to people, and there's not this huge lag and huge delay. And they got rid of some of the regulations and the bureaucracy, and... They didn't just focus on vaccines. Trump was also talking about developing therapeutics. In other words, he took an approach that a private sector person would. You know, in the private sector, you want to diversify your investments. You want to diversify your risk. A government approach is to put all your eggs in one basket. You find one thing that works and you just do that. That's what Biden has done. So Biden came into office with the vaccine. And the Biden administration has only focused on the vaccine. That's where the mandates started coming in. First, it was all voluntary. You know, everyone go and get vaccinated. Now we'll give you prizes for getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You can get into a lottery if you get vaccinated. You can get tickets to the baseball game if you get vaccinated. Okay, we're tired of giving away freebies. Now we want you all to be vaccinated or you're going to lose your jobs. That's how Biden went with it. And he stopped talking about testing. They actually made a deliberate decision not to develop more tests, which is why we got caught flat-footed by the Omicron variant, because there were no tests. Mm-hmm. 
we have stopped hearing about therapeutics and, and drugs and that sort of thing. So Biden did the opposite. He went back to the old way of doing things, the government way of doing things. So that's one thing Trump did right was he, he approached it with a private sector outlook. Let's diversify the approaches. Let's liberate the free enterprise system to do what it does best. The other thing he did that was extraordinary was he allowed the states to run coronavirus policy their own way. So you're right that in the beginning, there was a general consensus around lockdowns. The federal government shut international travel and so forth. But then I Trump... I think the only exception was South Carolina, might have been. Well, yeah, there were always a few holdouts, but essentially, yeah. I mean... You know, Trump stopped travel with China and, and with Europe. I think he, he allowed the UK to travel a little bit longer. Right. But, but then he backed away. And what happened was interesting. The states took over the regulations. And you had a few states like Texas and Florida, Florida in particular, that decided to take a different path. And Florida decided very early on, I think it was May or June of 2020, no more lockdowns. We're done with lockdowns. We are open for business. And what happened was people from the rest of the country started flocking to Florida. There's a huge influx of people. Not just to visit, to move. To move there. Yeah. Move. I, I've had friends who've moved to Florida. Florida has no state income tax. In California, where I live, the top level of state income tax, this is on top of your federal income taxes that you pay to the national government, is uh, 13%. So you could pay up to 13% in personal income tax in California. And... That's huge. Florida has zero. Texas also has zero. But Florida was open for business. They didn't have these regulations. Ron DeSantis, who's a conservative Republican who was elected governor with Trump's help back in 2018, he took a different strategy than the rest of the country. He said, we're going to protect the elderly. And there are a lot of older people in Florida, yeah, very popular it's a retirement place because yeah. of, of the nice warm climate. He said, we're going to protect the elderly, but we're going to let everybody else go about their business. And Florida's results from a public health perspective are not really different from the rest of the country. In, in some ways, they're better. There were times when there were more cases in Florida, but there also have been times when Florida had fewer cases than the rest of the country. And what what Democrats were saying throughout was Ron DeSantis is going to kill people by opening up the economy. That turned out not to be the case. And Florida did very well in the pandemic. There were Again, there were times when it was spreading rapidly, but Florida took an approach that worked, that kept its economy growing, and that attracted investors and residents from other states. So people from New York who used to go to Florida on vacation have moved there permanently. Californians, uh, people from other parts of the country, from Illinois, cold weather states in particular are moving to Florida. So there was this experiment in real time that was possible because of the structure of the United States, this federalist structure, which exists in South Africa to some extent as well, but it's mm. not as emphasis. It exists in Canada as well, but in Canada, the different provinces really didn't do anything different. I mean, you have all these provinces. They, they basically took similar approaches to, to the one the Democrats wanted in the United States, which was severe lockdowns. There weren't, uh, there weren't any dissenting provinces in Canada, really. So you had these counterexamples. And once they started opening up, they started driving the rest of the economy. In the early stages of the economic recovery, a lot of the new jobs were being created in Florida and Texas because they were mm -hmm. the first places that were open. So that started pulling the rest of the economy along. So that's one reason the United States has bounced back so strongly is that we had this earlier head start because we didn't apply the same policy everywhere. And what Biden did when he came into office was he tried to mandate everything everywhere. And from a very early stage, Florida rebelled, Texas rebelled. They said, we're not doing this. He called them names. He called them Neanderthals. He mm -hmm. said it was Neanderthal thinking to drop yep. the mask mandates and that kind of thing. And they did fine. And so the rest of America started pushing back as well. One factor here, and I'll just end my answer on this point with this observation. 
mothers in particular with school-aged children were probably the most significant group of voters who switched from Democrat to Republican in the few elections that happened in 2021. There are a few states that had their Mm -hmm. local elections in 2021, their state elections. And mothers were furious at the school closures. Now, there are other countries that locked down in a more serious way than the United States, but the United States was unique in that schools remained closed. Schools were closed. I mean, my kids didn't go to school in person for more than a year. And that's because the teachers' unions insisted on absolute safety, zero risk at all for their members. They were 100% fixated on the idea that they didn't want any teacher to get sick at school with COVID. And the welfare of the students was just an afterthought if they thought about it at all. The mothers who had to quit jobs or start working from home or whatever they had to do to take care of these kids, they had to supervise their, supervise their kids on, on remote learning, on Zoom and whatever. They were horrified by this, and they saw for the first time, many many of them, that the teachers' unions did not care about students, or at least they cared much less than they cared about their own union power, and union of course, members. The, the teachers' unions are major funders of the Democratic Party. Huge funders. of the, I mean, in California, the teachers' unions basically decide who runs the state. Right. So that was a big revelation as well. And in fact, as I'm speaking to you now, there's been a recall election in San Francisco. The voters – we have this funny recall Mm-hmm. mechanism in California where you they can... They tried to do it to your governor, didn't they? Right. The governor survived, but... Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom survived, but the voters of San Francisco, possibly the most left-wing city in America, have just thrown out three members of the school board because of public frustration with the school closures. So even in deep blue left-wing San Francisco, there's a backlash against the lockdowns. And... So, so yeah. Joel, let me ask you about the big picture here, because you're one of those people who's written a, a ton of books, and you've you've got a really interesting quick take and and much more deep dive into into where you think things are going there has been this kind of lurch to the left over the last couple of years in terms of you know general western liberal democracies heading in that direction and you know the the issues that have that have been front and center for most of those countries have been issues that have been prioritized by the left trump was a bit of an aberration but the overall momentum seems to me, anyway, and you please correct me if you think I'm wrong, to be heading back in, in, a, in a more centrist and toward the right direction. I see like ordinary people who before never really considered it important to be independent of the state, to have their own rights respected, or to own a gun, or to be able to make the decisions that they want to make over their children's education, or the kind of extent to which they depend on government. The average American, and I think this goes through to places like, you know, in Europe, for example. I mean, we know France is coming up for a very questionable election. We've got Hungary. We've got Poland. We've got places like Austria. Even in Spain, there's talk of a little bit of a lurch to the the right. We know in in Britain, for example, it's going to take Labour a long time to get back into power, even though Boris Johnson and the Conservatives have really screwed up COVID. They're, They're safe. And a lot of the world, Brazil, we don't have to talk about Bolsonaro very much, but I think you know what that means. It seems to me like things are, that pendulum swinging back. I think people have a bias toward what works. And one of the reasons I switched from left to right was... You used to be a big left. Yeah, in, mm. in college, was seeing that what the left wanted just didn't work. And you can't care about the welfare of the people you're trying to help and persist with policies that don't work. So I think that's what's happening. You are seeing a shift. 
I don't know how permanent it is. I don't know how extensive it's going to be, how how far it's going to go. You know, there is also a fear of a right-wing extreme nationalism, I think, that, that comes from historical experience, and you're seeing some response to that as well in in some parts of the world. I mean, just by the way, what, yeah. do, what do you make of, of the, the overall reaction, just while you mention that, to January the 6th last year? Because <laughs> because a lot of yeah. people take that very seriously. You know, it's it's trotted out as a very serious, dangerous, uh, they call it the, the insurrection. Um, and we in South Africa just had our parliament building, building burnt down and we <laughs> had some riots last year, which were, were fairly important political, you know, incidents. Right. Um, but But is there a... Is there a reason to be particularly afraid of that kind of thing in the world now? Well, I mean, do you think that the, the, the January 6th insurrection is all that it was made out to be? No, it, it wasn't. The January 6th riot was a riot. It was basically like any number of protests that, that got out of hand. I mean, we saw it throughout 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement. Ninety-some percent of those protests with Black Lives Matter were peaceful, but there were thousands of protests, and some of them became riots, so much so that in 48 out of 50 U.S. cities, the largest 50 U.S. cities, 48 of them had riots. We had riots in Los Angeles, which were traumatic. And we had lockdowns, not for coronavirus, but we had curfews because of the violence. Mm. And Must have reminded you of South Africa. It, it, it was weird. You know, <laughs> here I am in Los Angeles, and there are National Guard troops on the street guarding the shopping malls. And... You know, the residents were giving them cookies and flowers and things like that, just so glad that the military had finally moved in to stop this. It was it was crazy. And you didn't know what was going to happen. And my kids, you know, we took them through the downtown area of Santa Monica where we had just moved from, and they saw a very familiar landscape looking completely bombed out. Store windows shattered, graffiti everywhere. They put graffiti on the public library. You know, it's not, it's not about, you know, capitalism and whatever. It, it was just a complete nihilistic rebellion. And it was an insurrection. It was an attempt in some ways to overthrow Donald Trump. Initially, in that first weekend of rioting after George Floyd, and, and what happened to George Floyd was terrible, but the Democrats exploited it and pushed it. And the weekend after that, there was a huge crowd outside the White House. We had a journalist there from Breitbart, and he was assaulted by the crowd. And he had, to, he had to flee for his life. And we have the video of it and everything like that. And the Secret Service that night rushed Trump to a bunker because they were afraid they couldn't hold the crowd back. There were over 100 police officers who were injured. And there was an expectation in the American media and on the left that Trump was going to be forced out of office by this this show of of unrest. It was going to be like one of the color revolutions of Eastern Europe. That's really what they expected. And it didn't happen in the end, but Biden spent the rest of the 2020 campaign mocking Trump for having to go into the bunker. It wasn't like Trump was hiding from what was going on. If anyone was in a basement, it was Biden. But this was a deliberate attempt, I think, to create so much instability that people would choose to vote for Trump just to make the instability go away. So there really was an insurrection in 2020 on the left. What happened in 2021 on January 6th, had some of that character in the sense that there was a small fringe element that really did believe that they were going to take control of the situation themselves. Most of the thousands of people who showed up at that rally were peaceful and believed that they were expressing opposition to an electoral process they thought had been rigged. Now, I can give you my perspective on that. I don't think that the election was fraudulent. 
But one of the great benefits of having the experience of having lived in South Africa and worked in South African politics is that you see some things in elections in Africa that are not quite above board. I'll never forget when the ANC described one of these Zimbabwean elections as legitimate. They couldn't say it was free and fair, but it was legitimate. And I think you could say that about the 2020 election in the United States. It was legitimate because according to the rules that were in place at the time, it was carried out properly and there wasn't enough voter fraud to cause Trump to lose and Biden to win. But the whole environment around it was not free and fair. There was the street violence I mentioned before. There was the social media censorship. There were crackdowns on ordinary media coverage of events. There were changes to the voting rules at the last minute. There were all sorts of things happening. And these were not conducive to a free and fair election. So I felt that the election was really problematic. However, I could not eliminate the possibility that Trump had simply lost Mm -hmm. because you you couldn't. None of us none of us can do that. So we have this funny electoral college system where basically the the election is in November, but the electoral college, which is decided by the election, then votes formally to elect the president in December. Once that happens, the president is the president. And people criticize the electoral college, but it's actually a, a, a sort of wonderful thing because it's an acknowledgement by the founders of the United States that sometimes elections are going to be wrong. They are going to be flawed. And so there's this group of people that just sort of decides things. It seems arbitrary. Well, but it is a republic. It's a republic, right. Yeah, so you have to accept democracy. That. So when January 6th came around, people people, asked, people have problems with that. They, you know, all you hear, the refrain from, from a lot of people at the moment who don't like the result of X or Y right. election is, oh, this is an attack on democracy. Right. But effectively... A democratic republic is very different to a republican democracy. Right. And keep in mind also that in 2016, Hillary Clinton and her allies spent the next four years trying to claim that the Russians stole the election, trying right. to undo the election. Absolutely. Get, trying to undermine Trump with all kinds of illegitimate surveillance and that sort of thing. So Calling the election into question, asking right. whether it was legitimate or not. When people asked me about the January 6th rally, when it was being planned and people were organizing it and so forth, I said on my radio show, I didn't think people should go. Now, this was at a stage when I didn't know. Nobody knew Mm. that there was going to be any violence. But I learned from the master. You know, and Tony Leon really is a a master of understanding politics. And, you know, Tony understood that you have to balance things. You have to – he would call it – you have to marry politics and principle. And you don't go into a fight in which there's no way to win. And from my perspective, there was no way that the January 6th rally, which I assumed would be peaceful and everything, and it was mostly, but there was no way that was going to lead to any kind of positive political outcome. All I saw happening was Trump taking tens of thousands of people to Washington and promising them that if they applied enough public pressure to the government, that the government would revisit some of these problematic elections and that sort of thing. And I just didn't see it happening. There was this Bizarre constitutional theory. I mean, it has some grounding, but this theory that when the votes were finally unsealed in Congress on January 6th, that the vice president could intervene and send some of the votes back to the states to be reconsidered. Bit of a fool's errand. Yeah. Look, Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, is a deeply conservative guy, not just in terms of his political views, but in terms of his personality. Principled guy, too. But also in terms of temperament. There's no way he was going to throw the country into turmoil. He wasn't. That's not who he is. And you knew this wasn't who he was because back in 2015 – when his state of Indiana passed some laws against the transgender bathroom thing, which was sweeping the country, still is, but really it was starting out then, 
there were some businesses that threatened to boycott the state unless they reversed their policy. And he immediately backed down. He said, look, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight yeah. over this cultural issue. I'm, I'm conservative socially and so forth. I, don't, I won't go to dinner with a woman who's not my wife and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But he, he backed off because he just wanted to keep the peace. So anyone who expected Pence to intervene was someone who didn't understand Mike Pence. So well, I said I, – I, Donald Trump. Right, Donald Trump – well, Donald Trump <laughs> – He didn't understand it. He didn't and, and I think – Or did he choose not to understand it? I think Donald Trump believes he wins in every situation. It's the, it's the key to his success. So whether he genuinely believes he won the election or he convinced himself that he won yeah. the election, it doesn't matter. I mean, there is a yeah. pathology there. There's, this is where, despite all the things that you've said about him already that make him a unique and interesting person and leader and someone who can shake up the system. I mean, there is something about the guy that's just a little <laughs> – a little 80s businessman, J.R. Ewing, you know, almost storybook kind of <laughs> Does not play well. With, does I not mean, play well with others. Yeah. That sort of evaluation. Yeah, he's, Look, uh, and, and obviously a lot of his disasters were of his own making. Well, yes and no. So on the one hand, you can call it counterproductive. On the other hand, it's part of the secret of his success. I mean, the Twitter, you know. Twitter was <laughs> in some ways – counterproductive. At the same time, it also created some incredibly positive outcomes. I mean, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Yes. No, no, I give you... you I, know, I, I, I if Trump agree. hadn't tweeted about fire and fury mm. or my, my button is bigger than your button... And he knew how to deal with another guy of that, of that right, mold, right? right? And, and, and that, was, that was no small success. I'm one of those who thinks he should have tweeted less and said less and, and yeah. so forth. You know, so I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just don't know that we can say definitively that it was... 100% a negative for him. Some of that was a positive. But I think that this fool's errand of the January 6th thing was was really troublesome. And I think it does hurt his legacy. It doesn't, it doesn't disqualify him from, from the presidency, by the way, because lots of people run for office believing crazy conspiracy theories, and they win. Sure. I, I mean, Joe Biden endorsed the Russia collusion thing. Sure. He won. You know, all, all sorts of things like that happen. So that's not really something people are focused on. But, but the January 6th thing has now become something more. It's now become a kind of McCarthyist investigation of the political opposition. There's this January 6th committee in Congress that is in violation of its own rules. And they're not just trying to find out what happened. They're going after personal bank details, phone records. They're subpoenaing, you know, they're summoning uh, innocent people to testify. It's, it's, it's gone way out of hand. And, and that has to be stopped in my view. So one of your books that I'm, I'm, I've been most interested uh, to, to talk to you about is The Intolerant, uh, the, the 19 Truths That the Left Can't Handle. <laughs> and the reason for that is you've already mentioned that there's so many things that the, the left, they mean well sometimes. The whole idea of being compassionate is very much a, a, a leftist you know, trope. It's, it's, a, it's like the idea of equality. Uh, diversity and inclusion. These are, these are key words now that fire up that base. And many people on, on the right caricature leftists and many people on the left caricature people on the right. And unless we understand each other, there's going to be no way for us to come together and actually live in the same country together. And in, in America, these divisions are not getting to the point where there are people who are talking about secession. You know, there are people who are saying red America has to be a different place to blue America. With your book on the left and the way that things are going in places unexpectedly like Australia, like New Zealand, like Canada, and we see particularly Canada in the news at the moment. How do you feel about where this 
this divergence that you spoke of earlier is taking everybody. So let's talk about that book, 19 Truths the Left Can't Handle. That wasn't my idea initially for the book. I wanted to write a book about national public radio, which sounds rather boring now, but I, but it's very interesting because it's the closest thing we have to the SABC. It's not quite as government-run as the SABC is, but it has been taken over by the left. Mm. And I wanted to write about that and write a history but of it's it. A pr- it's a very provocative title. You wouldn't have sold a book on NPR. Right. right. <laughs> so they gave me this idea. Why don't you uh, do something like this? And look, it is a book of problems with the left. But I divided the book into thirds. So one-third of the issues that I talk about are issues where the the right is clearly in the right. There, there are some issues where conservatives have the better argument and the left wants to shut them up for that reason. There are some issues where it's not really clear who has the better argument. One of those, for example, is the minimum wage, where mm-hmm. you could argue that the minimum wage keeps unemployed people out of work, but there are other arguments that the minimum wage doesn't do that and it helps people getting into the job market for the first time. There are, there are different arguments. Even there, the left shuts down debate because of the intolerance of the left. And then there's a group of issues where the left perhaps even has the better argument. And one of those is the gun issue. I mean, I'm someone who supports gun ownership and, and the right to gun ownership, but the left has a compelling case that there's a very high cost we pay for that in the United States in terms of shootings and mm-hmm. some of the school shootings and that sort of thing. But the left won't even tolerate the pro-Second Amendment argument. They just want to shut it down. There's talk of getting the banks to close the accounts of the National Rifle Association and other things like that. So the left's intolerance prevents them from having a debate that they can win. They just don't want any debate at all. And so that's that's what I point out in that book, that there actually is room for understanding, room for people to talk to each other, room even for the left to convince neighbors and When, and when did the left become the side that was against talking about stuff because they used to be the free speech people right it was the right right that were against you know the right used to be the book burning kind of fundamentalist theologian kind of you know sulfur and brimstone from the pulpit kind of people when did the left become the people who weren't tolerant i think it starts really with the rise of the academic left and the importance of the campus within american society a lot of the 60s radicals, when they were doing their thing, they were pretty marginal, but a lot of them went into teaching, and many of them rose to positions of power within the American Academy, and they quietly rewrote a lot of the educational curriculum for the best and the brightest. And they have managed managed to turn the American university system into what is usually regarded as, um, what was once regarded as one of the foremost research institutions in the world, They've now turned I mean, it into. You, you went to Harvard. I went to Harvard, and Harvard rewards research and so forth. But they've turned these universities into indoctrination factories, where students endlessly moan about all of the privilege that Gre- they have. Grievance politics, all that stuff. I yeah. mean, and that's really where the the uh, shutting down began. Not only because of this universal sense that everybody was a victim, and so your point of view is a form of physical violence against me, but in a way. The intolerance grows out of a kind of utopianism because one of the things that persists and that is a luxury you can enjoy when you're a student is the idea of an ideal world. We're all young people. We can change the world. We can perfect the world. This temptation of believing in a, in a perfectible world is so compelling to young people who don't have a lot of experience of the world. They look around the world. They see that it's imperfect. People are unequal. There are people who are poor. There's war and so forth. So we can perfect the world. And we have ideas about how to do it. 
when someone disagrees with your idea, that person is now a threat to the perfection that you had. Specifically around, or especially when, when the idea involves economic redistribution. So if you want to solve poverty and create a perfectly equal world, you need some people to be forced to give up what they have to give to other people. If those people say, well, I don't think that's a good idea, they become a threat and, and their point of view cannot be tolerated. Otherwise, the entire system doesn't work. So I think there's, in a way, a kind of perversion of a positive feeling of a noble idealism that has interpreted alternative points of view as being threatening to this perfect world. And and really, you know, what I think comes with maturity or should come with maturity, maybe it, maybe it doesn't anymore, but what it used to is the idea that human beings are not perfectible. Human society is not perfect, perfectible. I mean, that's not who we are. But we can live as good a life as possible, and we can uphold values that are timeless. There's no human life without pain. There's no society without poverty. But we can reduce suffering, and we can live worthier lives. And that doesn't come through interfering in the lives of other people. It comes through perfecting our own lives. So, Well, it's, it's Chesterton's old saying. I think it was his. If you're in your 20s and you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. And if you're in your right. 30s or 40s and you don't have, you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Well, we've prolonged that adolescence. That's the other problem. So we mm. have, look, the other, the, the other, 30-year-olds living at home with their parents. Well, why are they living at home? Able to buy property. Right. Why, and why is that happening? Partly it's the economic turmoil. The jobs, yeah. But partly it's also the huge cost of education in the United States. The student loan problem is just massive. It's a massive default waiting to happen. And young people are burdened by these loans and they're unable to get a living, to make a living because the university will, will give them loans or, or will give them degrees mm-hmm. as they take out loans for things that, that don't make them employable. I mean, no, you're not going to get a job if you have dance theory as your major. You, you, you might get a, you you're know, you're not going to get a job. <laughs> dance, you know what? Um, I, I, you know, Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll get around with that example. I was I was about to name a few dancing jobs where you can probably yeah. make a. a, a and that's living. not why. That's not why I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you today. I I think your point is well well made. I just want to talk a little bit about Canada before we break, wrap yeah. this up because I I know you've got to go. But but Canada is an interesting story at the moment because you've got this. It's the most polite country in the world. Right. Right. There's never there's never anything rude. I, I mean, I've heard the speaker in Parliament just this week kind of asking people not to. Um, to shout over the prime minister while he's talking, but he says it in such a nice way. It's almost as if, you know, it's it's the kind of fifties uh, twee, uh, friendly, gentle. Now, don't you say that kind right. of thing that you don't hear anymore in politics. But now Canada has very quickly had to reckon with some very very messy things that a country like that probably never thought it would have to. Canada locked down quite severely, and again, I think part of this is this illusion of perfection. I also think, by the way, that's what's happening in Australia and New Zealand. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't have the best read on what's happening there sure. because it's far away from where I am. But I think, ironically, because Australia and New Zealand kept coronavirus numbers so low in the early stages of the pandemic, I think they committed to a policy of severe lockdowns once the numbers started to rise later in the pandemic. And I think something similar happened in Canada. And look, Canada has a different orientation. They sound like Americans. They live very much like Americans. 90% of Canada's population lives within, I think, 100 miles of the U.S. border. But the goal of Canadian society isn't 
freedom or liberty. The goal is order, actually. And if you look at their founding documents, they want a more orderly society. So in many ways, it, it is cleaner, less tumultuous, more humane in some, in some parts of Canada anyway. And they don't have guns the way we do in the United States. I mean, there's some hunting rifles in, you know, Alberta or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, people don't have handguns and that sort of thing. But I think what happened in Canada was Trudeau, who a year ago was saying that vaccine mandates were extreme and divisive, decided that once the Delta variant came in and the Omicron variant, he had to mandate them. He, he wanted to keep case numbers really low. And, you know, ironically, South Africa was the country that adopted the most sensible policy toward the Omicron variant, basically looking at the cost and benefits. That wasn't necessarily something you'd predict from the way South Africa responded to coronavirus in, I the, think in the beginning. Our, I think to give our government less credit, they just ran out of other options. <laughs> Maybe. They knew they couldn't afford well, another lockdown. We were all looking at the early coverage of the coronavirus with the military on the streets, and I think mm. Sora Ramaphosa was in military yeah, yeah, yeah. fatigues at one stage. I mean, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, from the citizen's point of view, I can tell you no one was taking it seriously. R- right. The so, townships didn't take it seriously for a second. Okay. And they were our saving grace. So South Africa looked at Omicron and said, you know what? This has mild effects, and maybe this is even our ticket out of this thing, because if mm-hmm. immunity starts to spread, then there's herd immunity and we're done. So that's the approach that some American states took. And even in California and other places that that prefer the lockdowns, there was such a public outcry and you're seeing it again in san francisco where they're tired of the schools being closed right i think trudeau still had this notion of of perfectibility and he decided after opposing mandates he was going to impose them on truckers now truckers don't interact with other people i mean they're driving across these enormous distances on their own nowhere on their own in the freezing cold canada is cold ottawa the canadian capital is one of the coldest cities in the world and you know they're out there freezing they're not going to be interacting with a lot of other people. So it never made sense. I think something like 85% of truckers were vaccinated anyway. Yeah. But it became this occasion for protest against the entire way of doing things that Trudeau had 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 managed. And the other thing, again... It's like is, a last straw. Look, Trudeau's also uh, typified that kind of liberal hypocrisy. I mean, we have so many cases of people on the left mandating masks and so forth, but then taking the masks off at political fundraisers or at Hollywood events. Trudeau was like that as well. I mean, he had Mm -hmm. so many cases. And the other thing is, he called the truckers racist. (laughs) I I don't know on what basis, but this is a guy who, by his own admission, had worn blackface at parties more times than he remembered. So, you know, he is is that typical hypocrisy and he's kind of a... But racism, calling someone a racist is like the last Chance saloon. <laughs> On your way out of town when you've lost all the other battles, that's kind of where you, 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 that's your last stand. It is, but unfortunately it's very effective. Despite it that. It is effective. It's, it's, it's both a sign of desperation, but it, yeah. it, it can be very effective. People I mean, don't want to be called racist. Nobody wants to be. And yeah. it's, it's really, really tough to stand up to that. So, you know, that's, that's what he's done. And it's, it, it, it has worked. It's funny. If you look at opinion polls in Canada, the majority of Canadians in these polls, anyway, want the trucker protests to be cleared away. Yeah. At the same time, a majority also agrees with the truckers on the on the issues. So, they, what's what do you think is going to happen? Do you think this is going to affect Trudeau's government? 
I do think it will, but not immediately. Right now, his party is rallying behind him, but he's lost support on the left because the left has the sense that he's out of control. He's not in control. Oh, really? And now he's come in with his emergency powers that he's he's yeah. uh, he's invoked the emergency, the emergency act. act. Yeah, that's starting to worry people on the left as well. It's just crazy. And when he's been asked recently to justify why he did that, given that he didn't do it for various other things, there's no there's no real terrorist threat no. in Canada. He said, "Well, he wanted to send a message that this kind of protest is unacceptable." That's not an emergency. I mean, the emergency is no. one he created. So it, it's very troubling, and it, it does show you that, that the left has become the greatest threat to civil liberties, which, as you point out, wasn't the case 10 or 15 years no. ago. But there's this intolerance toward dissent and this, I think, seductive but ultimately self-destructive idealism about human perfectibility. Climate change is a part of that as well. We yeah. cannot control the weather, oh, yeah. you know. But we can make our engines more efficient. That benefits everybody without having to put anyone in the coal industry out of work, for example. But that somehow is is not something that policymakers. I've got words for people now: climate change denier. Yeah, and that comes know? from that comes from Holocaust denier. I mean, right. the word denier is imported there right. specifically to give that a, you know that kind so, of a context. So just to wrap yeah. this up, because I mean, there's so much other stuff. I wanted to talk to you about you know Jews in South Africa and, yeah. and the kind of anti-Israel stuff that the ANC is famous for. It's something that you and I would probably talk for another hour about. But you've you've written a book about that too. Um, really, across the world, anti-Semitism is on the rise, and this is something else that we didn't expect to happen, but it seems to be very on vogue for the Jews not to be part of the aggrieved coalition that the left so often panders to. Right. Because in places like America, Jewish families have been quite successful, and, and there's some resentment towards that, clearly. Right. What do you think the future of of Jews is in America, of Jews in South Africa also, but also what the, the this ultimately what this anti-Semitism is going to lead to because we know where that goes when it's uncontrolled. And and it doesn't seem to be as uh, terrible a thing to some people. They seem to have a very soft approach to the original bigotry, the world's first kind. Well, I have a bit of an iconoclastic approach to anti-Semitism. And I believe that although it's a risk and a threat – it comes from a very, very, very small number of people. So those people can be very effective because, you know, if they have enough guns or whatever, or if they have a loud enough megaphone, they can do a lot of damage. But I tend to focus on the strength of Israel, on the strength of the Jewish community, and I look at the positive things. I just don't like being in the mindset of thinking of myself or my community as being potential victims. I mean, things happen, bad things happen. I've, I've, seen them i've i've you know had to deal with anti-semitism but the right way to deal with that sort of thing is to use it to build something positive i mean i think that's the lesson of israel really is that israel has basically become successful because they've tapped into their own history the jews who built israel tapped into the jewish history of dispossession and discrimination and so forth and decided to transform themselves in a way and say well we're just not going to be defined by these things and anymore. also not to participate in some kind of victim olympics no and and <clears throat> what the debate about israel in south africa misses what the debate on, on about israel in, in the united states misses as well at least when it's on the left is what's happening in the middle east right now i mean what's happening between israel and most of its arab neighbors is so incredible. It, it 
is almost a rival to the South African it transition. It doesn't get any headlines, but it really is extraordinary. It's incredible. The I'm, relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Yeah. Um, and these, these are countries that have, were avowed enemies. The best is the United Arab Emirates. I mean, yeah. you know, one, one of the few predictions I made, I don't make many predictions because it's very hard to see the future, but I, I said jokingly almost that the flights between Tel Aviv and Dubai, once this peace thing happens, you know, it's going to be like going from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, you know, where everyone's basically just, you know, flying in and flying out and getting yeah. drunk on the plane. I mean, that that's what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. there's this massive uh, cross-boundary travel and trade and Jewish families are having weddings in Dubai, and right. you know it's it's it's. You'd never incredible. have been able to foresee this. Yeah, I, I have I have a friend who grew up in Dubai who who called me up and said, "Hey, you know, I want to go to Israel with you. You know Israel pretty well. Why don't you show me around?" I mean, there's this incredible interest and there's this commonality. So they've discovered all of these overlaps between Islam and Judaism and, and different Middle Eastern cultures and and what Dubai is doing with its own economy. There's an example of another society that. It's decided to be something different than its past. It comes out of the oil industry and so forth, but it's decided to make its future more diverse, more interesting. So there's a commonality there. Both nations are, are nations that have taken their, their destiny into their own hands. And so when people say, what about the Palestinians and so forth, they're really missing the bigger picture. I mean, this this project of reconciliation is is moving ahead. Mm-hmm. It's, it's happening. And the most important thing for the Palestinians right now is for the present generation of Palestinian leaders to disappear. And you've got Mahmoud Abbas sitting there in year 17 or 18, whatever yep. it is, of his four-year term, and and just <laughs> unable to move his society forward. Yeah. And and when he leaves the scene, which will be, you know, in the next few years, it'll be interesting to see what young Palestinians actually want because they have not been able to express themselves. No. So I think there's a significant constituency, maybe not a majority, but there's a significant constituency of Palestinians who want a better life. And that means having a relationship with Israel that's not antagonistic. And I think that's where the debate ought to go. In South Africa and on the campus left in the United States, people retain these anti-Israel positions because the left needs a target. Yep. And they've decided that Israel is the new colonial settler regime and so forth. But it, so it's I'm, not really I'm, a good fit because – I'm it, unfortunately going to – if I don't yeah. stop you now, we're going to run out of okay. time. I, I, I'm going to have to. Joel, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for making time to speak to me. And, I mean, we've just scratched the surface, but keep doing the good work you're doing. Thank you, and you as well. Your podcasts are incredible, and you. you're doing good work. Thank you so much. Cliffcentral.com.